This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. Back in season one of the podcast, I released a series called Artful Crimes, which allowed me to combine two of my favorite subjects, true crime and art history. This month, I'm revisiting that theme and bringing you three more true crime cases connected to the world of art and artists. In this episode, I'll tell you a terrifying true life story that involves famed architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright was one of the most influential designers of the 20th century. He most famously introduced the architectural style known as Prairie School, a concept that sought to blend a home or building into its surrounding landscape. Of the over 800 buildings Frank Lloyd Wright designed, his prized project was a home he built for himself. It was set into the rolling hillside of the Wisconsin River Valley near Spring Green, Wisconsin. He named it Taliesin. But from Taliesin's groundbreaking in 1911, it was mired in scandal. Wright built the home for himself and his mistress, Martha Borthwick, after both had left their spouses and children to be together. Indeed, Taliesin seemed to be cursed, becoming the site of two devastating fires and in the summer of 1914, the scene of a horrific mass murder. This is the second chapter of Artful Crimes, Volume 2. Frank Lloyd Wright and the Taliesin Massacre. Even before Frank Lloyd Wright was born, his mother, Anna Lloyd Jones Wright, predicted big things for him. While still pregnant, she predicted her first child would design beautiful buildings. She decorated the baby's nursery with engravings of English cathedrals and brought home a set of wood geometric blocks for her son to play with as a toddler. Frank would remember spending hours engaged in building structures with his wooden blocks during his early childhood. At least, this is the story Frank Lloyd Wright would tell in his autobiography. Only some of it is true. But Wright never let facts get in the way of his own story. He also didn't let rules and guidelines dictate his life. He decided early on that societal conventions wouldn't hamper him from attaining his goals and desires. This attitude would lead to some of his biggest successes and his greatest tragedies. He was born Frank Lincoln Wright in 1867. His mother, Anna Lloyd-Jones, was part of the large and well-known Lloyd-Jones clan who'd immigrated from Wales to settle and farm in the Wisconsin River Valley. Frank would later change his middle name to Lloyd to honor his Welsh ancestry and his mother's family. Anna Lloyd-Jones, called Hannah, became a teacher. She didn't marry until she was 27, an advanced age for a bride at that time. She wed 41-year-old William Carey Wright, a widower with two young sons and an infant daughter. Together, they would add three more children to the family. Frank, Anna's firstborn and only son, and daughters Jane and Margaret Ellen. Hannah and William were two very different people. She was tall and broad-shouldered and came from a family of farmers who toughed their way through many harsh Wisconsin winters. William was small of stature and gentle. 
he wrote poetry, composed music, played several instruments, and was a gifted pianist. He made his living as a preacher, and as the family grew, the Wrights struggled financially on William's small salary. When her son Frank was born, Hannah immediately placed him front and center in her life. She would dote on him, and throughout his life rarely lived very far from her son. Hannah had announced soon after his birth that her son would be special, but it's unlikely she predicted he would become an architect. She did, however, encourage him to pursue art. Hannah, like her sisters, was a teacher and valued education. She correctly believed that fostering her child's creativity would benefit him intellectually. To encourage this, she gave young Frank simple art supplies and also a set of geometric shapes made out of wood to engage his mind, which she was certain was brilliant. When Hannah first married William, she was a devoted mother to her young stepchildren. But after her own children were born, she lost patience with them and treated them like burdens. She was often angry and was said to have a terrible temper. When William's relatives learned that Hannah was beating his children, they stepped in and took them out of her home. William wrote to his children often and visited when he could, but Hannah was happier that they were gone. William was under constant financial pressure, as his earnings were often dependent on the offerings received from his parishioners and a few extra dollars he received by giving music lessons. The Wrights were forced to relocate often, moving around the country in order for William to pastor one small church or another. Hannah became increasingly unhappy. It was also reported that Hannah suffered from deep depressions, taking to her bed for days or weeks on end. When she emerged, she was often in a foul mood railing at her husband for all his faults. Physically, Hannah was an intimidating woman, and her husband tended to try and stay out of her way. His gentle and scholarly nature didn't allow him to fight back, which only resulted in increasing her fury. She became physically abusive towards William, throwing objects and even beating him. She would eventually shut her husband out of her life entirely, both physically and emotionally, and refuse to have him in her presence. Hannah was never abusive toward her children, but the angry, intense energy in the house and the physical violence the children witnessed towards their father certainly affected them negatively. Hannah was as doting and loving to her son Frank as she was hateful and mean to her husband. Frank could do no wrong in his mother's eyes, and she praised him constantly, telling him that he was destined for great things. Frank seems to have lapped up the praise and compliments heaped upon him by his mother, because beginning early in his life, he felt himself deserving of special considerations in all things. In short, he didn't feel the need to follow the same rules that governed everyone else. Why should he, when all his life, his mother constantly reminded Frank that he was special and set apart from other children? Frank was a gifted child. He became a skilled pianist even though he never took formal lessons, not even from his father. Of course, Having a musically gifted parent and access to a piano also helped. But Frank must have been born with some innate musical talent because he could play flawlessly by ear. He was also extremely intelligent. Frank loved to read and devour just about anything put in front of him. But he rarely paid attention to his schoolwork, and his grades were terrible. His mother and teachers pushed him to do better in order to be accepted to university, but Frank didn't seem to care. At 18, he dropped out of school without completing his high school education. Two years earlier, his father had left the family, but not of his own choosing. 
Hannah had become increasingly abusive to him, and her own family implored William to leave for his own safety and for the good of his children. They knew Hannah was mentally unwell, and they hoped that if she got some distance from her husband, her mood would improve. William Wright was sad at leaving his children, but could see no other way to end the unhappy situation they had been living through most of their lives. He packed up and left. Soon after, Hannah accused her husband of deserting his family. When he found out about this, William filed for a legal divorce so the details of their separation would be officially on record. In 1884, he sued Hannah for divorce on the grounds of, quote, emotional cruelty, physical violence, and spousal abandonment. Frank would take his mother's side and even in his biography years later, would claim that his father had abandoned his family. Frank claims that after his parents' divorce, he never saw his father again. Frank Lloyd Wright was an 18-year-old high school dropout, but had already decided that he was destined to be a great architect. Without benefit of a diploma, he applied to the University of Wisconsin's engineering program. He was accepted as a, quote, special student. I can only guess that he was able to pass a qualifying test with flying colors in order to bypass the regular college entrance requirements. He certainly would have been able to ace a college interview. Like his father, Wright was a gifted speaker. He also appeared self-confident and self-possessed in everything he did, was always dressed in fine tailored clothing, and presented himself well. Wright would always live above his means and would be drawn to the finer things in life. This would cause him to fall into debt frequently, even when he began securing lucrative contracts for his design work. Wright was able to enter college on his own terms and then leave the same way. With less than a year of engineering classes under his belt, he left college to seek employment, believing he was ready to begin his career in architecture. Wright never earned any degree, except an honorary one, and not until 1955, when his alma mater presented him with an honorary doctorate in fine arts. At the age of 20, Wright left Wisconsin for Chicago, where a building boom was underway. He put on his best suit and tie and presented himself for interviews at some of the most renowned architecture firms in the city. He had one family connection and used it. Wright's maternal uncle, Jenkin Lloyd-Jones, had commissioned Joseph Lyman Silsby's architectural firm to design the All Souls Church in Chicago. Prior to that, Silsby had also designed Unity Chapel, the Wright's family chapel, in Spring Green, Wisconsin. 18-year-old Frank Lloyd Wright had worked on this building project for Silsby and now came to offer his services. He was hired as a draftsman for $8 per week. Within a year of working for Silsby, Wright deemed his job too boring, too low-paying, and beneath his skills. He took a position with the Chicago design firm Adler & Sullivan, where he was hired as an apprentice, working under Louis Sullivan. Sullivan was a demanding boss and treated most of his employees poorly. He liked Wright, however, and spent time mentoring him. Soon, Wright was given more important design responsibilities. While Silsby considered his trainee a valuable employee, Wright did not get along with the other draftsmen at Adler and Sullivan. Tension between Wright and his co-workers even came to blows several times, according to his autobiography. Wright worked on several residential projects while with the company. Sullivan became like a father to Wright, even lending him money to purchase a home when he married his first wife, 
Catherine Kitty Tobin in 1889. With the $5,000 loaned by Sullivan, Wright purchased a home on a lot in Oak Park, a suburb of Chicago. He gave the house to his mother, Hannah, and built a smaller house on the lot for himself and his bride. In the first five years of their marriage, Kitty would give birth to four children, Frank Jr., John, Catherine, and David. Three years later, Francis was born. Their youngest child, Robert, was born near the couple's 13th wedding anniversary. With six children to raise and Wright's love of expensive automobiles, tailored clothes, and other luxuries, he was always in debt. To supplement his income, he began taking independent commissions without Sullivan's knowledge. Wright designed at least nine houses while working for Sullivan, many of these knockoffs of design work created by Sullivan's firm. However, he began adding his own stylized touches that would set these projects apart as Frank Lloyd Wright designed homes. One of these homes was built in Sullivan's own neighborhood. He recognized the design as similar to those Wright had worked on for his company. Sullivan confronted Wright, whose five-year contract with the firm forbade him from taking any independent work. Wright had agreed to the five-year term of employment in exchange for the home loan from Sullivan. Wright, at first, tried to say he was unaware of this clause in his contract. He then fought with Sullivan, arguing against the restriction, and threatened to quit. Sullivan, feeling betrayed by the person he had mentored and given great opportunities to, told Wright he would not release the deed on Wright's home until he honored all five years of his employment contract. Incensed at this, Wright stormed out and quit. He and Sullivan would not speak for over a dozen years. In 1893, after quitting Sullivan and Adler, 26-year-old Frank Lloyd Wright launched his own Chicago-based firm. He would share office space with three more young architects, Robert Spencer, Myron Hunt, and Dwight Perkins, who were all inspired by both Sullivan's work and the arts and crafts movement. Perkins would soon bring his apprentice, Marion Mahoney, into the group. Mahoney would become one of the first women to be licensed as an architect in the U.S. She would go on to design furniture, leaded glass windows, light fixtures, and other features for the homes Wright designed, which are now instantly recognizable. Together with Frank Lloyd Wright, this group of young architects formed the Prairie School. Prairie School architects sought to move away from the more classical designs of the past and toward a more natural, free-flowing aesthetic that incorporated the home's surroundings into its design. It was predicated on themes and motifs of the arts and crafts movement and featured simple handcrafted details. Wright began receiving commissions for projects in and around Chicago. He wasn't always able to sell homeowners on his new Prairie School style, so some were built in traditional Tudor and Queen Anne styles and other classical designs. Wright's projects came to the attention of Chicago architect and planner Daniel Burnham, who was one of the wealthiest and most powerful architects and urban planners in the United States. He designed several famous buildings, including the Flatiron Building in New York City and Union Station in Washington, D.C., he also had a prominent role in city planning for Chicago, Manila, and Washington, D.C. When Burnham approached Wright with a proposition, he had just completed a very successful stint as director of works for Chicago's World Fair, known as the White City. Burnham offered to fund four years of study for Wright at the École des Beaux-Arts in Paris. In addition, he would finance two more years of study in Rome, and to top it off, once Wright returned, Burnham would provide him a position in his firm. 
Wright turned him down flat. He was not interested in learning or working in classical design, but once again preferred to take his own path. Wright saw his new designs as superior to those currently in vogue and believed that they were the future of architecture. He continued to promote his signature Prairie School-style designs at the turn of the century and gained some success with two featured articles in Ladies' Home Journal in 1901. The media attention would lead to an increased interest in his work and more commissions. In 1903, Wright was commissioned to build a home for Edwin Cheney in Oak Park, Illinois. Cheney lived in the same neighborhood as Wright. He worked as an electrical engineer and was married with two children. While working on the Cheney house, Frank Lloyd Wright got to know Cheney's wife, Martha Mayma Borthwick Cheney. He was drawn to her beauty and intellect, and soon he and Mayma would begin a torrid love affair that would change the trajectory of both their lives forever. Martha Borthwick, called Mayma, was born in Boone, Iowa in 1869. She studied languages and literature at the University of Michigan, graduating in 1892. There, she met Edwin H. Cheney, who was an engineering student. After graduating from college, Mayma worked as a librarian in Port Huron, Michigan. She and Edwin Cheney didn't marry until after Mayma's mother died in 1899. By then, she was almost 30 years old. She moved to Oak Park, Illinois, and married Cheney. Mayma's sister Jessie died in 1901, giving birth to her daughter, also named Jessie, and Edwin and Mayma became her adoptive parents. The following year, Mayma would give birth to her first child, John, and three years later, to a daughter, Martha. In 1903, Edwin Cheney and Mayma commissioned Frank Lloyd Wright to design their home in Oak Park. Mayma had met Wright's wife, Kitty, at a local women's club. Mayma told her husband about the up-and-coming architect who had built some homes nearby that they had previously admired. A meeting was set up between the Cheneys and Frank Lloyd Wright to discuss the project, and Wright was immediately taken with Mrs. Cheney. Mayma had taken work as a translator, a painstaking and cerebral vocation which set her apart, in Wright's estimation, from other women who made up the Oak Park social set. Mayma also had progressive ideals and would become an early feminist. Like Frank, she felt confined at being dictated by conventional society how she should live her life. She had spent three decades under her mother's thumb, and now, newly married, felt she just exchanged one type of control for another. While work commenced on the Cheney house, Mayma and Frank started spending more time together. She found him handsome and smart, and he enjoyed talking about his ideas with her and found her opinions fascinating. He considered Mayma his intellectual equal, something he hadn't experienced before with another woman. At first, the relationship was two married people who just spent an inappropriate amount of time together. Gossip began to swirl when Mayma was seen squired around town in one of Wright's fancy automobiles. At some point, the two began a sexual affair. In 1909, Mayma told her husband she was taking the children to Colorado to visit a friend. After a short time there, she wrote to Cheney, telling him to come and pick up the children. When he arrived, his wife was gone. She had traveled alone to Europe to meet Frank, who was in Germany working on a book. Frank and Mayma had both left their families to be together. Mayma had left three children along with her husband, 
Frank abandoned his wife Kitty and six children, as well as his career. The couple remained in Europe for nearly a year, living in Fiesole, Italy for much of that time. There, Mema worked on the translation of a book titled The Morality of Woman, penned by Swedish feminist and suffragette Ellen Key. She would travel to Sweden to meet Key, and this meeting served to solidify Mema's own feminist ideals. Wright spent his time in Europe completing work on his book, Studies and Executed Buildings of Frank Lloyd Wright. Released by a German publisher in 1911, the book introduced Wright's work to a European audience for the first time. During this time, Mema and Frank committed themselves to pursuing a life of, quote, artistic ideals, unfettered selfhood, communication of the spirit, fidelity to a higher code, and of broader service to humanity, end quote a philosophy that served to justify their decision to abandon their former lives for each other. Wright eventually gave an interview to reporters about his relationship with Mema and described it this way, quote, Two women were necessary for a man of artistic mind, one to be the mother of his children and the other to be his mental companion, his inspiration and soulmate, he explained. As you can imagine, this didn't go over well with the public, but he made it worse by adding, quote, Laws and rules were made for the average. The ordinary man cannot live without rules to guide his conduct, but that is what the really honest, sincere thinking man is compelled to do, end quote. An attitude Wright no doubt extracted from the messages he'd heard from his mother all his life about how extraordinary and special he was. Edwin Cheney filed for divorce in 1910. Afterward, Mema dropped her married name and became Martha Borthwick again. Kitty Wright declared she had no intention of divorcing her husband. For several years, she believed that Frank would return to her and his children after he, quote, came to his senses. In October 1910, Frank and Mema returned to the United States. The community was scandalized by their brazenness to conduct their affair openly and condemned the couple. Wright's commissions dried up, as very few people wanted to do business with an unrepentant adulterer and homewrecker. The press hounded the couple in Chicago, never tiring of splashing the minutest of details about the architect and his mistress in the papers. To escape this attention and live in peace, Wright persuaded his mother to purchase land in Spring Green, Wisconsin. He wanted to return to his place of ancestry to build a home for him in Mema, and his mother, of course. On April 10, 1911, Ground was broken on a plot of land where Wright planned to live happily for the rest of his days with Mema Borthwick. Instead, just a little over three years later, the property Frank Lloyd Wright would call Taliesin would become the site of the worst mass murder in the history of the state of Wisconsin. Frank Lloyd Wright planned his most personal project to be built just south of the village of Spring Green, Wisconsin. Wright's mother's family had first settled in the area in the mid-1840s, upon arriving from Wales. He'd spent summers in the area as a teenager. Hannah, wanting her son to learn to put in an honest day's work like she had in her youth, sent Frank to the family farm to help out. Wright had fond memories of the area, remembering it as peaceful and picturesque. It was into this environment that he had chosen to start his life with his mistress, Martha Mema Borthwick. Wright planned to build a beautiful home that would blend in with the landscape of spring-fed rolling green hills and limestone outcroppings. He named his project Taliesin, a word that means shining brow in Welsh, 
as it would be built into the brow of a hill or ridge. Wright envisioned Taliesin as a place where he could work and teach, and more importantly, where he and Mema would find peace from the gossip, disdain, judgment, and criticism they'd received from the public. The 800-acre estate would encompass Wright's 21,000-square-foot private residence, studio, and workroom. A small apartment was built in a separate section of the house, probably intended for his mother to live there eventually, but was initially inhabited by Wright's draftsmen. Wright began making sketches of the home while in Italy. He also designed the furnishings and fixtures as well as the gardens that would surround the home. If Wright and Mema thought they could live together in peace at Taliesin, they were wrong. Once the Chicago press got word that Mema had joined Wright in Wisconsin, the media began referring to Taliesin as the Love Cottage and the Castle of Love. Local residents were now tipped off about Frank Lloyd Wright and his mistress living just on the outskirts of their town, and they weren't happy. They wanted Wright and Mema run out of town, and even called for the local sheriff to arrest Wright. The school superintendent was asked to comment on the ramification of allowing such immorality to continue in his county. He said, quote, The scandal is bound to have a demoralizing effect on the school children of the community. It is an outrage to allow young men and women, boys and girls, to grow up in the belief that a man and woman can disregard the marriage bonds, end quote. But we've already learned that Wright was not concerned with the opinions of ordinary people who could never understand the needs of a true genius. He continued on, building his home and studio, and planned an architecture school on the grounds as well. He hired staff to help with the project, and some of his employees moved onto the property. Wright was mainly concerned with securing new projects, as he had only received a handful of commissions since his affair with Mema became public knowledge. He needed money to pay for material and labor, and was running low on funds as he continued to expand plans for Taliesin. Wright then must have breathed a sigh of relief when he was awarded a contract to design a beer garden and arts center called Midway Gardens. Midway Gardens was to be a 360,000-square-foot indoor-outdoor entertainment facility in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Southside Chicago. Wright was frequently away from Taliesin in the summer of 1914 as he worked on the project. Mayma was also occupied that summer as she had been reunited with her children. Her former husband, Edwin Cheney, had legal custody of 8-year-old Martha and 11-year-old John, but had consented to let them visit their mother at Taliesin for the summer holiday. Martha oversaw the staff, which consisted of a cook and a handyman, a married couple named Gertrude and Julian Carlton. 31-year-old Julian and his wife had been referred to write by John Vogelsong, the caterer for the Midway Gardens project. Vogelsong told Wright that the couple, originally from Barbados, had previously worked for his parents in Chicago. They were hired by Wright in June of 1914. When Julian first arrived at Taliesin, he was assigned various tasks to perform. He served as a general handyman around the property and was given small jobs by Mema. He also sometimes assisted Wright's workers with tasks such as carrying materials, cleaning up, or running errands. His wife Gertrude cooked for Mema, her children, and half a dozen workers. Julian assisted his wife by serving the meals in the dining rooms. Separate dining rooms were provided for the family and the staff at opposite ends of the property. Julian was described as generally quiet, but genial when he first arrived at Taliesin. Over the summer, however, he began exhibiting strange behaviors. He grew increasingly paranoid and irritable. His paranoia resulted in him slinking around the property at night 
and peering out of the windows while carrying a butcher knife. He also began to balk at taking orders from some of the workers. He and draftsman Emil Brodell exchanged words one day in August when Julian failed to follow an order. Brodell, it was later reported, had called Julian a, quote, black son of a bitch, end quote. Two days later, the men would get into a physical confrontation before another worker quickly broke it up. Mima had reported Julian's paranoid behavior to Wright, who during his visits home over the summer had also noticed the handyman acting strangely. He and Mima decided to find another cook and placed an ad in the paper. On August 13th, Julian and Gertrude Carlton were informed that their services were no longer needed. Mema told them that their last day would be on August 15th. Around noon on August 15, 1914, Julian helped his wife serve lunch to Mema and her children on the sun porch located off the living room. After the soup was served, Julian told his wife she could leave and he would take over. She was to finish packing their things because they were scheduled to board a train that night back to Chicago to look for a new position. Julian returned to the sun porch where Mema sat with her children. He was carrying a hatchet. Before she had time to react, Julian brought down the hatchet, striking Mema on the face and killing her almost instantly. He then struck John several times. The boy died, still sitting in his chair. Eight-year-old Martha fled after witnessing her mother's murder. She made it as far as the courtyard before Julian overtook her and she was struck down too. He then returned to the porch, poured gasoline on the bodies and lit them on fire. The house quickly began to burn. He then traveled to the other end of the house where the workers were sitting down to lunch in the dining room. Present that day were 26-year-old Emil Brodell, the draftsman with whom Julian had fought, 68-year-old Thomas Brunker, a laborer, landscape gardener David Lindblom, 38, draftsman Herbert Fritz, 19, and William Billy Weston, 35. Weston's 13-year-old son, Ernest, was also in the dining room. He'd come to help his father during his summer vacation. Young Herb Fritz was the first to notice something unusual. There was a sound like water spilling onto the floor. He looked down to see liquid spreading into the room from outside. Julian had poured gasoline under the dining room door from the hallway. Just as Julian lit a match and threw it onto the floor, Fritz jumped up and crashed through the window closest to him. He broke his arm in the process, but managed to escape the flames that quickly engulfed the room. Julian slammed the dining room door shut, trapping the men who remained inside the burning room. Emil Brodell had entered into an adjacent room where Julian found and cornered him. He struck the draftsman several times with the axe, killing him on the spot. Julian then retreated from the burning building and hid outside. The remaining men frantically worked to break down the door to escape from the flames. Billy Weston and his son Ernest were the first to escape and come running from the building. Julian emerged from his hiding place and set upon them with the hatchet. Both would be wounded by axe blows. Ernest most seriously, but they managed to get away. However, the boy would die several hours later of his injuries. Thomas Brunker and David Lindblom were able to escape, but their clothing had caught on fire. They rolled down the hill to put out the flames, but were badly burned. Still, Julian caught up to them and struck them with several blows of the hatchet as well. They fought him off, desperate to live, and escaped. Billy Weston and David Lindblom were still able to run to a nearby farmhouse to summon help. Weston then returned to the house, where the fire continued to rage. Using a garden hose, 
he worked to extinguish the flames closest to Wright's studio, saving several of his manuscripts. Meanwhile, Julian Carlton ran into the basement and shut himself into a fireproof furnace room. He had a vial of hydrochloric acid in his pocket. He swallowed the acid in an attempt to kill himself. Neighbors arrived first to find Taliesin engulfed in flames. They began working together to put out the fire and were soon aided by local firefighters. In total, seven people lost their lives. Mayma Borthwick and her children, John and Martha Cheney, Emil Brodell, Ernest Weston, David Lindblom, and Thomas Brunker. Lindblom and Brunker had held on for three days before succumbing to their injuries. Only Billy Weston and Herb Fritz survived the massacre. Julian Carlton was found barely conscious in the furnace room. He was still clutching the blood-soaked hatchet. He was taken to the Dodgeville jail, where it was discovered that he had swallowed the acid. His esophagus and stomach had been seriously damaged. Outside the jail, a crowd formed, calling for Carlton and threatening to hang him. He was able to croak out a message. They'd better let me live if they expect to find out something, he said. But Carlton never did give a reason for murdering seven people. His wife Gertrude was found cowering in the field, watching the house burn. She was wearing her traveling clothes, and when told what her husband had done, said she had no prior knowledge about his plans. She was arrested and taken into custody, but when it was determined she was telling the truth, she was released. She told investigators that her husband had begun acting paranoid in the weeks leading up to the murders. She had no idea why, but he began keeping a hatchet in a bag next to their bed. Gertrude Carlton was given a few dollars for a train ticket to Chicago. After that, she seems to have disappeared, and there are no reports of what became of her. On August 16th, Julian Carlton was indicted for the murder of Emil Brodell, whose slaying had been witnessed by survivor Billy Weston before he escaped the flames. Carlton pled not guilty. But Julian Carlton would never stand trial. He died of starvation in his jail cell 47 days after the massacre at Taliesin. Frank Lloyd Wright and Edwin Cheney were informed of the murders and arrived at Taliesin on the same evening. Cheney would bury his children in a plot in Chicago. Wright buried Mema on the grounds of Unity Chapel. Wright was distraught over Mema's death. He did not hold a funeral service and declined to have her grave marked with a headstone. He couldn't bring himself to display such a permanent reminder that she was gone. Wright's grief was so deep, it manifested itself in psychosomatic illnesses, even including temporary blindness. He spent time recovering at his sister Jane's home. Some months later, after he recovered, Wright set about rebuilding Taliesin. A third of the living quarters had been burned in the fire. He would later write, Taliesin should live to show something more for its mortal sacrifice than a charred and terrible ruin on a lonely hillside in the beloved valley. When the reconstruction was complete on the house, he renamed it Taliesin II. He added a room with a stone floor, which he called the Loggia. From this room, Wright could see the grounds of the family chapel, where the body of his beloved may lay. Rumors continued even after the terrible tragedy at Taliesin. Some would say that the horror that took place was some kind of karma for Frank and Maymaw's, quote, sinful and scandalous relationship. 
Others even accused Wright of having his lover killed off, a theory that makes little sense. Still others, however, were deeply saddened by the loss of innocent lives, including three children. Wright did receive sympathy from some, especially upon learning how deeply he grieved Maymaw's death. In 1919, Wright was awarded an important contract, the design and rebuilding of the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. It was a four-year project that was immediately plagued by issues. A 6.8 earthquake hit the city, and a fire broke out on the construction site. When the hotel finally opened on September 1, 1923, it restored Wright's reputation as a world-renowned architect. Wright returned to Taliesin in 1922, when the majority of his work on the project was completed. In 1925, Wright was at home when he noticed smoke coming from his bedroom. The telephone wired in the room had experienced an electrical surge due to a lightning storm and sparked a fire. The fire department was summoned immediately, but it had spread quickly due to high winds. Taliesin's living quarters was destroyed for a second time. Wright went into debt to rebuild Taliesin once more. Now called Taliesin III, the property almost went up for auction when Wright was unable to pay the bank loans. But a client of Wright's came up with a plan to form a company called Frank Lloyd Wright Incorporated and issue stock on Wright's future earnings. Many of Wright's students, friends, and former clients purchased stock in the company and $70,000 was raised. The newly incorporated company then successfully bid on Taliesin for $40,000 and returned the property to Wright. It was at his studio at Taliesin III that Wright designed some of his most famous and celebrated works, including the home called Falling Water in 1935 and the world headquarters of S.C. Johnson in Wisconsin, completed in 1939. In 1973, Taliesin was listed in the National Register of Historic Places, and in 1976, it was designated as a National Historic Landmark. Today, the home and the surrounding estate is owned by Taliesin Preservation, a nonprofit organization created to restore and preserve Wright's property and legacy. The home and surrounding buildings is open to the public for tours and provides educational opportunities in architecture, agriculture, culture, and nature for youths from 8 to 18 years through grants from the Wisconsin Arts Board, the State of Wisconsin, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Kitty Wright finally granted her husband a divorce in 1922. Wright would marry twice more. He and his third wife, Old Giovanna, married in 1928. They had one daughter together. Frank and Old Giovanna remained married until his death in 1959 at the age of 91. Wow, that was an intense story. Let me know what you thought of it. You can connect with me and Once Upon a Crime listeners on the Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Once Upon a Crime Facebook fan page or click on the link in the show notes to join us for discussions, funny memes, true crime breaking news, and more. There are a lot more fascinating details about Wright's life, including an additional sordid story about his second marriage and so much more. I highly recommend two books on the subject. They are both novels, so really fun to read, but the authors have done extensive research on Wright's life, relationships, and work. They are The Women by T.C. Boyle and Loving Frank by Nancy Horan. I've included links in the show notes. I'll also be sharing more details and side stories about cases I've covered in the series Artful Crimes as a bonus episode for Patreon members. 
I often come across additional stories while putting together episodes, and every once in a while, I like to share what was left on the cutting room floor and didn't make it into the episode. You can become a Patreon member to get bonus episodes, as well as all new episodes ad-free, and listen to them before anyone else, for as little as $2 per month. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to find out more and join. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Copy editing by Crystal Dernan. Original music and final sound mix by Aaron Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. You can live out your MasterChef dream. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie. And we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.